Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, when you mention the word Vikings, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, if you're like me, I must confess, I was raised on ladybird history books in the 1970s and early 80s. Then you're probably thinking, you know, the cliched images of horned helmets and longships landing on the coast of Northumberland and huts on fire and monks running away in fear. You know, kind of bloodthirsty lot. And I suspect that maybe a few of us are aware that the Vikings, in inverted commas, discovered the Americas long before Christopher Columbus. So there's a bit of that as well. But actually, what we really think of is that they're a bloodthirsty lot and they basically hung around in the West, in sort of northern Europe, a bit of Britain, a bit of the United States. Well, my guest today really helps us to challenge that hackneyed, stereotypical image. She's the excellent archaeologist, Dr Kat Jarman, who's the senior advisor on academic content for the new museum of the Viking Age in Oslo. And she's also the author of this brilliant new book called River Kings, which is a new history of the Vikings, which reveals how they not only engaged with the West, but they engaged just as much, if not more, with the East. Because the Vikings may have navigated across the Atlantic, but they also navigated across Russia, which, you know, to be fair, is probably an even more impressive feat. And that's obviously part of the reason why the book is called River Kings. And what Kat does is to examine just what sort of culture and people the Vikings were. Now, I really want to know how Dr Jarman, you know, can possibly find out any new stuff, if you like, about the Vikings. Well, what she has access to is a tiny reddish orange bead that came into her possession temporarily, which to her eye initially looked like just a piece of 20th century costume jewellery. But it isn't. All right. So what I want to ask her about is this bead and why this bead in her book tells us so much about the Vikings. Dr Jarman, thank you so much for coming along. And in fact, I suppose I should begin by saying that you're not an archaeologist. You actually describe yourself as a bioarchaeologist. Can you briefly tell me exactly what that is? Yes. So a bioarchaeologist means that most of my work is based on studying human remains. So I study skeletons, the actual people that were buried back in the Viking Age, trying to get quite a lot of that direct evidence because uh, we actually leave some quite mad uh, levels of information in our bones and in our bodies that we can discover a thousand years later. So that, that really forms the basis of a lot of the work that I do. So I'm, I'm going to ask you in a bit about what it is about, you know, centuries old skeletons that can tell us so much about the way people lived. But I just uh, wanted a little bit of background about you, if I may, Kat. I mean, are you a scientist by training or are you a historian or an archaeologist or are you a bit of everything? I mean, you're, you're a blended academic. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like I have so many hats on my head. I can't quite work out what I am <laughs> myself. But uh, my original training was, was not in science, really. I started with a pure archaeology degree and uh, had quite a lot of interest. Archaeology is a very wide subject anyway, it's very multidisciplinary. But it was really when I was getting to my master's degree that I needed to specialise and didn't quite know where to go. I really liked studying human remains and bodies. And uh, and one of my, my lecturers uh, at the University of Bristol said, uh, well, what about doing uh, archaeological science? And I thought, well, well, actually, I, I don't know science. I haven't got a science background, very much humanities uh, degree. And he said, uh, well, can you cook? Which obviously sounds at first as a bit of a sexist question. <laughs> but, uh, actually, what he was getting at and what he's telling me then was that chemistry is, is very much just like cooking. You're following recipes, you're following these procedures and you add things in certain quantities and uh, you get some results out at the end. 
So that was sort of the starting point. And he said, well, you know, just, just go for it, try. And uh, I got some sort of in-depth training and suddenly found myself in the, the sort of leading chemistry labs in the world doing some quite advanced science. And uh, so, yeah, I sort of stumbled into, into the science side, which is great because actually having those two backgrounds, I think, having both the science and the humanities is, is what we really need to be able to understand some of these time periods in the past. And briefly, are you quite a rare fish in that case? Are there lots of bioarchaeologists around? There's more and more. It's becoming quite standard practice now to, to use this in archaeology. So there's more of us, definitely. But we still have people who are quite firmly just uh, in one camp, so either scientists or historians or, or whichever. But uh, I think we're opening our eyes more and more to, to the fact that we need to understand all of it. So, so you get more of us sort of merged, combined people out there. Now, the book itself, which is great, I absolutely loved it. At the heart of it, at the beginning, you've got this bead. Now, tell us about this bead, what it is and where it was found. Yes, that's right. So the bead itself is from a material called carnelian, which is a semi-precious stone. And it's not something we can find here in, in northwestern Europe. And the most likely sources, at least in the period that I'm looking at, is Gujarat in India. So this is why this was actually quite startling, because the bead was found among evidence, among archaeological materials, from a Viking Age site in Repton in Derbyshire. And right. if you know where that is, that's sort of right inland and in more or less in the centre of England. Uh, far from it's the not coast very and, near Gujarat. Uh, no, it's really, really not. It's many, many thousand <laughs> right. miles away. Right. Um, so the question really was, what on earth was the speed doing in Derbyshire? Why was it there in the first place? And how did it get there? And because it was quite surprising, that really took me on uh, and a journey, should I say, um, quite literally as well, and uh, to, to discover exactly what now, what sort of factors made it possible for that bead to make that journey more than 1100 years ago. So this bead, how, how big is this bead? I mean, is it, is it the sort of size of my thumb? Is it, you know, how big is it? It's probably about the, the, a little bit smaller than um, one of your fingernails, actually. Uh, so it's really quite tiny, no more than a centimetre across. And it's very pretty, it's very well preserved. Stone like that doesn't really deteriorate over time. So you can dig it out of the ground and it looks just like it looked 1100 years ago, which is why it's so special. But you see them today, you can buy things at Cornelian, you can buy beads just like this, uh, which is why at first glance you sort of think, well, how can it possibly be <laughs> so old? And can you tell me a bit more about the site in which it was discovered? Because it was, I mean, I, I, it sounds very untechnical for me to say it was discovered in a bunch of old bones, but that's effectively what it was in, wasn't it? Uh, pretty much, yes. Uh, so the grave that it was found in, it was found at, at the site called Repton, which was the winter camp of the Viking Great Army that camped there for the winter of 873 to 874. And we know yeah. this because of both historical records and archaeological excavations that took place in the 70s and 80s. And one of the really remarkable finds was this mass burial, which is extremely unusual, unique in fact. There was a mound in what is now the Vicarage Garden next to uh, an Anglo-Saxon church. And this mound contained the bodies of nearly 300 people all jumbled up. So, so these were bones that had been buried somewhere else first and then taken into this mass grave. And along with that were lots of uh, Viking artefacts. So pieces of weapons, things, uh, coins as well, dating to exactly the same time period that, that sort of made it quite clear that this was associated with the Great Army. And then somewhere along the way in that big jumble of bones was this uh, small carnelian bead. So what, sorry, when were these bones dug up? Was it in the early 80s, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. So the grave was excavated in 1982. So for decades, this bead had been sitting in a box with, with all this other 
evidence, I suppose. And and then you suddenly chanced upon it and went, hang on a minute. <laughs> yes, that's right. So I was I did, did my PhD research on these bones in Repton. So by this point, I'd spent almost 10 years uh, studying the site. And this was part of the old material that was found in the 80s that hadn't quite been fully documented. And I, I'd said I would help and got a huge pile of basically a car boot full of, of boxes uh, around to my house to start cataloguing and helping to, to put it into a museum. And in one box, uh, just a tiny little Tupperware box, uh, was the speed. And it's obviously been noticed. They're not, you know, they do, we do find them, as I, as I talk about in the book, we do find them quite a lot uh, in Scandinavia and other parts of the Viking world, but just not really in England. But I think when it was found, it wasn't really thought of as anything that unusual or that special. So it sort of, it, it kind of got ignored. Um, but when I started looking into it and understanding what that actually meant uh, was when I got got really excited. And that's essentially what led to, to the book River Kings. Right. But so so why is it exciting? Well, how does I suppose it's, it's how a bead like that, the size of your, your fingernail, how does that go from Gujarat to Repton? I mean, that that's basically what the book is, is looking at, isn't it? What is it about the Viking culture that, that makes that happen? Exactly. And it's the fact that we have these links then to the east, which uh, about 40 years ago when this, this grave was dug up, wasn't really considered so much. We have known for a long time, it's not, it's not something brand new information that the Vikings also went east. We've, we've known that really for hundreds of years. But the fact that it was connected to the West, so to the great army, to these Vikings that came over to England in the ninth century, that's something that we really only just started to see the extent of quite recently. So in the light of that, in the light of other finds and other discoveries that have been found nearby, seeing that there was also this link in Repton, so with those people that I'd been studying and analysing, that's what was so exciting. So I started to use all that new evidence, uh, things that have come up in the last 10, 20 years, things they didn't know about in the 1980s, to sort of get that big picture. And once you start doing that, you just find so, so many more connections and realise that actually East and West were extremely well connected already in the 9th century. So does this mean that Vikings actually made their way all the way to Gujarat? So we don't know if anybody actually made it to Gujarat itself. We know the beads certainly do. And, and this is one of the big problems. How do you really learn about trade? How do you know if it's just the things that travel? Because obviously you can pass it to another yeah. person who passes another distance uh, or the people themselves. We do know that Vikings traveled as far as Baghdad. Uh, there's uh, written evidence uh, of that. Certainly there's lots of trade going on. So there's, there's, we can be quite confident of that. Whether they then took the last little trip across to Gujarat or whether these beads were just ones that they could pick up in places like that, uh, that I'm not sure we will ever know. But uh, it's not impossible. But I mean, I, I mean, I have a lovely image of a Viking walking down Gujarat High Street in <laughs> whatever it is. And, or, but I mean, frankly, it's great that the, the, the idea of Vikings in Baghdad, I mean, that just seems extraordinary. It's not something I ever really considered before. So the implication being, of course, is that all these cities, you know, well over a thousand years ago, would have been, you know, I'd, I'd hate to use the word sort of cosmopolitan necessarily, but there are many more weird and wonderful people walking around them than just come some kind of monoculture, right? Absolutely. And I think actually cosmopolitan is quite a good word to use about a lot of these towns and certainly in places um, like Baghdad, or if you think about Constantinople or Istanbul, as we know it now, they really were melting pots of people uh, coming mainly through trade uh, and for other reasons uh, as well. So, so they, I think there was a, an awful lot more mixing of people uh, in these big towns and cities than we maybe think. And, and it's really trade is the one thing that, that pulls so many people together. And that's 
the thing about the Viking Age as well that we need to sort of understand how that takes place even in places like Northern Europe. So um, now you have other objects in the, in, in the book as well. And of course, one of them is this, is this little Buddha. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, so there's a Buddha that was found in a very unlikely location, uh, namely in Sweden, and uh, a site called Helga, which is near Birka, which is one of the, the Viking towns. And that was found, I think, I can't quite remember, now, I think in the 1950s or so. And originally it was it was thought to just be something later uh, that somebody had, had dropped that was mixed in. But in fact, it does date to the Viking Age, early Viking Age, or just before. So we have a Buddha statue that probably comes from somewhere in either India or Pakistan all the way up to Scandinavia, to Sweden, uh, in the 8th century, which is, again, another quite remarkable fact, really. And yeah. so the question is, of course, what, what was it doing there? And what did it mean? Does that mean that we have Buddhists living uh, in Sweden in, in the 8th century? Probably not. It was probably worn. There's some, uh, it's got a sort of leather band around its neck, which is showing that it's probably hung. Uh, so somebody's wearing it almost like a necklace, although it's, it's quite large. So perhaps it could have been a religious symbol, possibly, but uh, it could also just be a mark of something quite exotic, something really far away, because that's one of the things we're seeing in the Viking Age, which again, that the Carnelian bead is sort of representing, is that extreme interest in things that have come from far away, things that are hard to obtain, that show that you have these networks, that you've got the wealth yes. um, ability so It gives you some sort of bragging rights, doesn't it? It, it, yeah. it makes you look yeah pretty pretty worldly, I suppose. Well, absolutely. This Buddha, wasn't it on a, put on a stamp in Sweden in order to sort of foster an image of sort of early diversity and, and things like that it was also religious tolerance I can't remember something like that wasn't it yeah so it was it was pictured um, I think in about 2015 or so it was on, on Swedish stamps which I think was just to show I guess show the connections more than anything not necessarily I think a lot of people have interpreted it to think here's showing how we were sort of really uh, diverse back in the past but it's not I think it was more about the fact that these networks that that the Vikings were part of already happen at that point in time this is one of the one of the, one of the problems, isn't it? I mean, generally with with history, it's so much of it is sometimes reflects the prejudices of our own time, and we want to sort of feel comfortable about different cultures at times, or, or we want to sort of we examine things through the prism of things that are culturally important to us. And I suppose today that would be things like diversity, and and certainly the whole the whole questions about sort of gender and and the roles of the sexes and so on and so forth. Do do you feel that we're trying to sometimes impose? things upon Viking culture today? Do you think that, that it's a victim of that in some way? I think so. I mean, I think that's that's the case for pretty much any period, not just the Vikings. And sure. the Vikings have quite notoriously been abused over time for whatever purposes people have wanted to use them for. And sometimes we see a reaction to that as well. So for example, this emphasis on trade very much came after the Second World War, when um, uh, in Nazi Germany, the, the Vikings had really been used as a kind of poster child for for, for both the, the sort of superior or the idea of a superior race, but also for the, the violence and warfare and, and the sort of uh, yeah. courage and whatever else. And so after that, there was a big reaction saying, well, actually, no, they, they, were, they weren't like that. They were, they were nice and peaceful, trading, cuddly Vikings became really <laughs> popular. Um, so that was sort of toned down a lot, which again, I think probably went a little bit far too far the other way. So we do get that quite a lot. So we need to try and be very aware of what are we trying to do. So, so what are you talking about the the issue of gender? And and so I, I write about this in the book as well about women, especially the roles of women. Now it's very popular to try and find evidence for warrior women in the past. Um, you know, if anything from Wonder Woman or whatever films we get uh, yes. now, yeah. the sort of idea of these powerful warrior women in the past is a very popular topic. 
and people tend to go maybe too far extreme uh, in one direction or the other. So, so you, you see the sort of either those who, who try to deny women any role in past societies, yeah. uh, and then those who sort of try to give them too much, <laughs> as so it were. Hopefully, to project back. Now, just to be clear, there were no. There's no evidence yet of any Viking wonder women, sort of a, a warrior Viking females. This, this isn't necessarily something that's been found, right? Just want to clear uh, that one up. No, we do. We do have some. We, we do. We definitely do. So we do have several women buried with really quite extensive weapons. So one particular in Birka a few years ago, this is always thought to be the sort of very stereotypical male warrior uh, with a full range of, of weapons and uh, two horses and so on until a DNA study uh, proved that actually this was biologically a female individual. And that's just one example, but they are very rare. So the, the sort of view, the idea that we have huge big armies of, of just women or that you were completely free to choose as a woman if you grew up in the Viking Age to, to be a warrior, that's part of it I don't believe in. But I think it was an option for some and we do see some, some women right. active fighters. I love this idea that there's this constant sort of interplay between sort of um, violent uh, Vikings and sort of Nazi Vikings in, in inverted commas and then you've got the sort of the cuddly Vikings and of course you know as any decent uh, inquiry should try to hopefully not be, be sort of prejudiced by either of those sort of images and you just want to find what's there. There are some pretty unpalatable parts of Viking culture that you talk about such as um, slavery. Can we talk about slavery uh, briefly? Yeah, absolutely. So slavery was definitely a big part of both of the Viking trading networks and, uh, and also Viking society. We, we certainly know that slaves were a, a normal part of society. I should say that not just the Vikings, though. Um, I think mm. that's a bit of a misconception. A lot of people think that, that this was just something that the Vikings uh, got involved with. But actually, all over Europe and most of the world, in fact, slaves were very, very common and they were part of society. But the Vikings certainly were some of the most prolific and effective uh, traders in uh, enslaved people uh, across Northern Europe. And that's especially linked to the East uh, and in the Eastern territories. And then also we have this whole notion of sort of selective infanticide, you know, killing female children. Again, that, that again sounds like a very tough thing to, to swallow and take on board. Yeah, so that's again another one which um, I, I know in, in certain review recently was sort of pulled out. That's, that's one of the, the points in the book, but that was actually not quite right. So so what I write in the book is that it's quite possible that infanticide was used as a, as a form of population control. Essentially, it's, it, it is. I mean, it's still in the large parts of the world. It's mm. not unusual. It's not something that we particularly like to think about. But uh, one suggestion uh, that's been around for a while is that uh, in the Viking Age that girls uh, were especially selected because they were less favoured essentially. Uh, now that's actually something that I, that I don't agree with, I do write it in the book as well, we don't have any evidence for that. There's an idea that there's an imbalance, that there were too many men around and not enough women, but again that's something that we, we don't actually. So if you look at the evidence, if you look at the archaeology, sure. the, the bodies, it's the evidence is not actually Yeah, and that, that was in a review and you, you obviously challenged that. So it, that's interesting. It's nice, nice to have cleared that one up, um, actually. So I just before we sort of look at just a sort of the overall picture of the Vikings that emerges in your book, I'm also really interested in, in some of the other ways in which you, as a bioarchaeologist, sort of gather some information. And, and one of the things that I'm always fascinated by, I have a friend who's an orthodontist and he, he's very interesting about teeth. And I suspect that teeth are a big thing for you because I, what I found extraordinary is how much tooth enamel 
tells us about people and and that you know when when you and i are long dead and buried that if someone scraped away our tooth enamel it's going to tell tell people all sorts of things about the way we lived our lives can you tell me a bit about why tooth enamel is so important Yes, absolutely. I'm slightly obsessed with with teeth, I would say, because of everything <laughs> okay. that they can tell us. Because actually, we, we are essentially like living diaries of our lives, not just what you might be familiar with, things like DNA, we all know that you've passed on, you know, your uh, genes have been passed on from your parents and your grandparents and so on. But actually, more to do with your individual circumstances, things like where you've lived, what sort of food you've eaten, that's actually stored in your body. Because all our tissues, so everything, our skin, our hair, bone, teeth, that's all formed from the food that we eat. Those are like the, the sort of building yeah. blocks, uh, as it were. And some of those things change all the time, so our hair's growing, obviously. So the new hair that grows, we essentially have chemical signatures of the food that you're eating today and the water that you're drinking. But your teeth are formed in childhood, so your enamel is formed when you're a child in your permanent teeth. And then it stays the same, it never changes. So you can never sort of regrow your enamel. So whatever signals, whatever chemical signatures are in your teeth will stay there. And they will then stay there for another thousand years or several thousand years in the ground. So if I find a tooth uh, of somebody from the Viking age, I can analyze that in the lab and it can tell me something about the food, food and water um, that they consume during their lifetime. And that's really very extraordinary. That that's absolutely bizarre. So if someone digs up my teeth in a, in a thousand or a couple of thousand years time, they'll be able to know that I was eating, you know, and drinking the type of water that would have been found in sort of Buckinghamshire and Berkshire in the 1970s and 1980s or something. I mean, literally that specific, would it be? It is, yeah. So it's specific for geography. It's not quite postcode level, unfortunately, but it's broader geographical. Yeah, broader geographical region. So I grew up in, in Norway, for example. So my teeth will have the very sort of older underlying geology, so granites and that sort of thing, which have very specific signatures and also very cold climate. But my children have grown up in the southwest of England. So they, although they have uh, the, the same sort of part of my, my genes, they yeah. will actually have the southwestern English signatures in their teeth, which will be completely different. So that's where it gets really exciting, because if you found all of our bones in a thousand years, you could you could check that we were related, that we were essentially mother and mother and son. But you could see that my teeth show I grew up in Scandinavia and they grew up in England. So you could reconstruct that whole pattern uh, in a thousand years time if you wanted to. I'm loving the sound of your granite teeth, Kat. That's yes, <laughs> very <laughs> useful. Tough. Whereas those of us who now live in Wiltshire, like, well, your children and me indeed with our, our soft southern and British teeth. I just want to sort of wrap things up by just sort of trying to present a portrait, if you like, of, of, of Viking culture, the Viking people. Can we kind of find a synthesis somewhere between the, sort of the cuddly version and the horrible version? You know, it, what's this kind of rounded picture if you had to describe Vikings to people, you know, over, over a drink? You know, say, no, they were this. <laughs> yeah, I think the key thing that it comes down to me is I've been looking at uh, people that were very adaptable, very able to, to really adapt to so many different circumstances. And I think that was really key to the Viking success. And I think we're looking at them as, I like to think of them as entrepreneurs, really, able to go into all these different territories. So if they have to be violent, then they are. If they have to, or if it's better for them to be peaceful at trading people, then, then they go down that route. And it seems like they're quite able to swap between them and actually just adapt to living back home in Scandinavia, going down the rivers of, of Russia or right across to Iceland or Greenland, but actually 
just adapting to whatever circumstance uh, is there. And I think that to me is really the key. So we, we don't need to try and, and look at, decide if they're violent or if they're cuddly or whatever they are. But what's, what's really important is that whatever circumstances they find themselves in, they are taking advantage of it uh, and they are able to interact with so many different people in whatever way is necessary. And I think that really is the key to the Viking success. Fantastic. It sounds to me that adaptability is the key for growing a strong and projecting sort of empire. Is that adaptability that as soon as you're saying it, I kind of associate with sort of the Britain of empire. Um, you know, it's either are we violent today or are we going to trade today? You know, which, which mode are we going to be in? But we can we can do either. It is a bit like that, isn't it? Absolutely. It seems to be a very, very effective strategy. Right. OK. Well, I love this idea that actually the Vikings, they were adaptable. That's the message I'm taking home <laughs> yes. today. Kat, thank you so much for for coming along I, I really appreciate it. it absolutely fascinating and I really urge people to, to buy her book it's called River Kings and it's out now and it's a real eye-opener so many thanks indeed no, thank you as well right well that's it for today and I really hope you've enjoyed this podcast and uh, please do subscribe to it and leave us a review if you like obviously a glowing review either on Apple Podcasts Google or Spotify and you can always connect with us on at Mail Plus on Twitter and you can connect with me at Guy Walters. So in the meantime, many thanks indeed for listening in.